Well, let us unite our hearts together in prayer. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank thee this evening hour for the privilege that is ours to come unto thee. Lord, we thank thee that while we were yet sinners and had defiled ourselves with iniquity, thou sent thine only begotten Son to come and to seek after and save that which was lost. And Father, we do not stand before thee today puffing out our chest and boasting of our own righteousness, but we come only pleading the righteousness of Christ, thanking thee for the full atonement that he made, for our sins that he bore, and for the justice that he satisfied on our behalf. We rejoice today that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, and not conquerors through our own vanity. Father, we thank thee today for Christ, how thy beloved Son is our beloved Saviour. And we are able to come today and say we love thee because thou first loved us. And Father, as we gather here tonight, we covet thy presence. We thank thee for God the Holy Spirit, the one who our Saviour described as the promised comforter. And we pray tonight for the help and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit as we come to worship thee, as we come to study thy word, and Lord, as we come to unite our hearts together in prayer. We need the help of the Spirit. Our Saviour himself was asked of the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And we ask thee tonight, teach us to pray. Teach us to know what it is to lay hold of God. Give us, Father, prayer born of the Holy Ghost tonight. Give us, Father, that season of wrestling with God, a little taste of what Jacob endured. Give us, Father, the pleadings of the woman who asked for only the crumbs of the Master's table. Help us to be those tonight, Father, who know not just to what it is to go through the motions of prayer, but let us be those tonight who know what it is to meet with God and lay hold of thee. We thank thee for each one gathered here tonight, and we pray for thy blessing upon each heart and upon each soul. But Lord, remember those who can't be here tonight. We think of the Walker family, and we think of George especially, as he's laid low in his sick bed this evening. We lift him up before thee, that he would know thy gracious touch upon his soul, and that he would know thy grace in abundance. Encourage thy dear child tonight in the Lord, and Father, may his soul be flooded with thy mercies this evening. Do you remember the family that watch over him and care for him? How difficult it is for them, but we pray for thy grace for them even at this difficult time. So, Father, tarry with us here tonight. We need thy presence. We need thy blessing. We lament our sins and our sinfulness. We pray, Father, for strength to war against the body that would seek to pollute and corrupt us. And pray, Father, that thou would ever sanctify us by thy Spirit and help us to be those who are ever pressing towards the mark of our high calling in Christ, 
Help us ever to be those who are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Be with us tonight, we cry. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're turning to 1 Kings chapter 13 this evening. 1 Kings chapter 13. Just to remind you what's been happening so far. At the start of this chapter, Jeroboam has his hand withered uh, under the prophecy of the man of God. And the man of God has been faithful. He left Jeroboam and he headed back a different way than he came, just as the Lord told him to. But then an old prophet deceives the man of God, brings him into his house, which he was told not to do. He was told not to turn in for food or for drink. And, but he was deceived by this old prophet. And then the end result was the Lord was angry with him and the man of God was killed. So we've looked at Jeroboam. We've looked at the man of God. And tonight I want us to look at this old prophet. And we'll pick up from verse, well, we'll read from verse 23. So the man of God and the old prophet are sitting down eating together, which the man of God shouldn't have done. And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled for him the ass to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way and the ass stood by it and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion which hath torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord which he spake unto him. And he spake to his son, saying, Saddle me the ass. And they saddled him. And he went and found his carcass cast in the way, and the ass and the lion standing by the carcass. The lion had not eaten the carcass, nor torn the ass. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God, and laid it upon the ass, and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And it came to pass after he had buried him that he spake to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre, wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the house of the high places which are in the city of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing Jeroboam returned not from his evil way but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places whosoever would he consecrated him and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin 
unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. Amen. Well, being a prophet was perhaps considered something of a prestigious role. There were maybe those who were in the land who looked upon prophets as being special people. Here's a man and he has the ear of God. Here's a man and he has communication with God. Here is a man who has revelations from God. And maybe it was something of fame or fortune in those days. Maybe a prophet was somebody who was able to command the ear of the people. Who was able to gather the people round and say, listen, I have a word from the Lord. And I don't believe times change. You see, there are people today who are fame hungry. They want to be the center of attention. You probably have it here in America. We have it in the UK. Men and women who are desperate to be famous. Uh, They apply for television shows. They go and hang out where celebrities hang out in case uh, they uh, need a friend and they can be with them on the front of the tabloid papers. There's people who are desperate for fame. And I'm sure it was no different in the days of this old prophet. If you're a prophet, you will be elevated in front of the people. You will be revered and respected. Being a prophet was only considered a favorable role if the people liked what they heard. If the people didn't like what they heard, then suddenly the fame and any fortune that came with it did you no good. We think of Elijah. He prophesied against Ahab, and Ahab didn't like it one bit. Ahab made Elijah a marked man. Nor did Ahab like the prophecy of Micaiah. Why not? Because Ahab and Micaiah did not tell Ahab what he wanted to hear. Ahab had to make his own prophets to get men who would tell him what he wanted to hear. Jeremiah the prophet certainly didn't receive any special treatment. He was put in the stocks for prophesying what the king and what people did not want to hear. He was then imprisoned in a dungeon and then carried off to Egypt. Now, Jeremiah could have got out of this. He could have told the people what they wanted to hear. I take back what I said before. Let me tell you what you want to hear. And then they would have made him rich. They would have made him popular if he tickled their ears. We move into the New Testament to learn about the last prophet of the Old Testament, which was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he preached, and King Herod didn't like it. So King Herod had him arrested. And his wife didn't like John's preaching either. So she arranged for Herod to have him beheaded. Uh, So if you're a man of God, preaching the word of God, the natural heart of man does not like it. Because the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful and wicked and corrupt. A natural man does not like being told the truth of God's word. So the prophet of God is never going to win followers to himself. Because his message is offensive to natural man. His message goes against their lifestyle of worldliness and carnality. His message condemns sinful behavior. And his message directs men to repentance of sin and reunion with God. And natural man does not want that. Natural man loves his sin. 
Natural man loves his worldliness. Natural man does not want God. He wants to do things his own way. And times have not changed, dear friends. It was the same in the second generation. Abel brought a sacrifice to God, which he was commanded to do, and it was accepted. Cain brought the sacrifice that he wanted to bring, and God did not accept it. And from then, dear friend, man has been doing that which is right in his own eyes, and not listening to God. That's why God has to raise up prophets and preachers to bring his word. Sadly, false prophets existed in the land of Samaria. Why were they there? Why were there such things as false prophets in Samaria? Maybe they wanted to be famous. Maybe he got paid good money. You tell the king what he wants to hear and he'll give you a good wage out of it. Maybe they wanted power over the people. But such false prophets... Men who did not have true revelations from God sadly did not know God. That means that they were not converted. They were not born again. They hadn't experienced that regenerating power in their own lives whereby they, th- th- their love of sin went away and the love for God came into their hearts. Because if these men were truly converted, they would not want to be false prophets. Because a man who knows the truth, a man who has experienced the truth, will not want to go against God. He'll want to uh, go for God. And he'll not want to make up lies that he's received a revelation from God. Uh, He wouldn't dare be so foolish. So such false prophets, we have to say, they don't know God. A false prophet does not know God because a false prophet is not converted. A false prophet has no inspiration from God despite the claims that he makes. A false prophet has desires for his own glory and not the glory of God. He has desires to elevate his own name and build himself a cult following rather than pointing men to God. Look at John the Baptist. Repeatedly men came to him And said, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? And John kept saying, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces. And on two occasions, John the Baptist pointed men to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God was the message of John. John could have said, you know what? I've got a big following here. There's people coming after me. Maybe I should take these followers and uh, and get a bit of money off them and get a good house and, uh, and a nice retirement package. But John didn't do that. He lived in the wilderness. He had locusts and wild honey. John could have milked it for everything that was worth, but he wouldn't do it. Because a true prophet, a true man of God, lives for the glory of God and not himself. Such false prophets, like the one we read of tonight, they promote false worship. That is how we can spot a false prophet. Their desire is not to bring men to worship God and to know him personally and to know him intimately. No, they will promote another form of worship. And such is the case in 1 Kings 13, because we know that Jeroboam was involved in this. He had changed the feast days. He had changed the places where people were to worship and he had made the low people to be priests before God. And a true prophet ought to say, that's not right. 
What you're doing is wrong. You're going against the word of God. But sadly, false prophets will go along with false worship. And dear friends, we're fooling ourselves if we think that there's no false prophets in the world today. There's one who certainly wants false prophets. Somebody who is fighting against the kingdom of God. Somebody who is seeking to stop men from believing in Jesus Christ. There is one who is seeking to turn men away from the word of God. And that is Satan. And Satan wants false prophets to take people away from God. He's doing it in 1 Kings 13. And I tell you he's doing it today. And they have various extremes. There are some who are easy to spot. And some who are not so hard. I had a man who was emailing me for some time. Thankfully he stopped. But he told me that I wasn't converted. Because I wouldn't wash the feet of people. I have no problem washing people's feet as the Saviour did. If the Lord wanted me to do that. I just don't believe he's called me to do that. But he was telling me, unless you follow the example of the Saviour and wash people's feet, you, you can't be converted. He's telling me that I'm serving the devil because I'm not washing people's feet today. He says he has the message. I should listen to him on this point and all the other points that I'm wrong on and he's right on. Well, I replied and said, if I have to wash somebody's feet in order to be a believer... If I have to wash somebody's feet in order to get into heaven, do you know what that is? That's a work. And you have just made salvation a work-based system. You're saying it's not enough to repent of sin and believe the gospel. You're saying I have to go and actually perform a work in order to be saved. And of course he tried to deny that. But there are those out there who are false prophets in the world today. But dear friends, it's not the, the wackos that we need to watch out for in the world today. It's the wolves in sheep's clothing that Christ warned us about. And they're a lot harder to spot. Because as Christ said, they come in as sheep among the flock. But underneath, they're ravening wolves. In Acts 20 verse 29, we mentioned this in passing on Sunday. Paul is preaching his farewell sermon to the elders at Ephesus. And he says, For I know this, that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you. This is serious. Paul has spent years with this church in Ephesus, teaching them, admonishing them in the faith, building them up in the word of God. And he says, This is the thing that I know in my heart, that after I leave, wolves will come in among you. He doesn't say they will attack you from without. He says they'll come in among you. And that's where the danger lies, dear friend. Because we can be so careful spotting the wolves that are outside seeking to attack the flock that we don't see the wolf creep in amongst us. Sadly, we have a case here tonight of a man who claimed to be a prophet of God, but he was nothing of the sort. So let us look tonight as we finish our study in 1 Kings 13 on this old prophet. Four things to note about this old prophet. First of all, notice the silence of God. Verse 11, his sons came and told him all the works 
that the man of God had done. Now this man claimed to be a prophet. Perhaps he was schooled with the prophets in his younger days. Maybe if we're kind tonight and give him the benefit of the doubt, we can say that he was schooled with the prophets in the younger days, but then something happened. He lost out with God. For giving him the benefit of the doubt, here was a man who maybe knew the truth as a young believer. Here was a man who maybe knew the truth and knew what it was uh, to to study the word and knew what it was to be taught of God. But then somewhere along the way, false teaching came in. Jeroboam came in and he thought it'll be easier to go with the crowd than to stick with the word. And it is so easy for people to do that today. They look at the big mega churches. 40,000 people. A pastor whose, whose books are in Walmart. They look at the TV channels and see that pastor's on the TV. There's people all over the world flocking to hear him. He can't be that bad. There must be some truth in him. The crowd are all going there. Maybe I should go there too. So easy to follow the crowd. But lose out with God. Maybe he was schooled with the prophets in his younger days. Or maybe he knew nothing of the Lord from the very beginning. Maybe here's a man who has an interest in religion. But no genuine religion in his heart. There's the silence of God. God isn't speaking to this man. God hasn't raised up this man to go and speak to Jeroboam. He knows nothing about this event. Verse 11. His sons told him. God wasn't speaking to him. His sons had to come. And bring the message to him. This man we have to say is a false prophet. If he was a prophet of God. He would have been opposing Jeroboam. And speaking against him. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry says. I cannot but call him a false prophet. And a bad man. If you turn to 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23, verses 16 to 18. And as Josiah, who was the king of Judah at the time, turned himself, he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mount, and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres, and burned them upon the altar, and polluted it, according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. We've already studied that at the start of chapter 13. Then he said, What title is that that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the sepulchre of the man of God, which came from Judah, and proclaimed these things that thou hast done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. So here we have the old man or the old prophet buried with the man of God. But notice what he's referred to. He's referred to as the prophet that came out of Samaria. Now dear friends if you've read through your Old Testament 
you will know there's nothing commendable about the prophets of Samaria. They were not prophets of God. They were false prophets. They were men who were tickling the ears of the king, telling people what they wanted to hear. They were not men who had revelations from God. In Jeremiah 23, in the verse 13, God says, And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err. So here the God is saying there's nothing about the prophets of Samaria that's good. They prophesy to Baal, a false god. They don't prophesy about me. I haven't given them any revelations. They're making it all up. Or even worse, the devil's behind it. Sadly, there's prophets in Israel in the days that we're reading off here who maybe did think they were getting revelations from God. They weren't. There was another one behind it. And it was the devil. And it's the same in our land today. There are men and women in our land. And they genuinely believe. That they can speak in tongues. They genuinely believe that they get visions from God. But there can only be one of two explanations. It's either of the flesh. They're making it up. Or it's of the devil. Because these things cannot be of God. Scripture makes that clear. So how can we tell a false prophet in our land? There's a false prophet here in 1 Kings 13. This man didn't have a message from God. Well we can spot a false prophet in our land. Because he will not be proclaiming God's message. That is he will not be presenting the full truth of the gospel. A false prophet in our land will present half truths. Maybe take a, something that seems to be true and maybe comforting words to set people at ease and, and make them feel good about themselves. But he will shy away from declaring the whole counsel of God. Because a true man of God, a true preacher, will make a man aware of his depravity before the holy God. A true preacher will tell men that there's a holy God and we have grieved him by our sin. A true preacher will tell the people today that God is angry with sin and that he's angry with the wicked every day and there's consequences of sin and it's death and hell and judgment. But how often these truths of scripture are shied away from today. I heard recently of a preacher who was at a conference and there were two preachers at the conference. And one preached the whole counsel of God. And another stood up and acted like an entertainer or a joker. And both the men were standing at the door. And there's one young lady came up and shook the hand of the man who preached the whole counsel of God and walked past. And then she said to the other pastor, I love how you made me feel here today. I leave here today having, having never laughed so hard. I leave here today feeling good about myself. Now people don't come to church to feel bad about themselves. People come to church to hear the word of God. And it's the job of the preacher not to entertain. But to preach the word. Whenever Paul was writing to young Timothy. He was giving him some serious advice as a pastor. And this was it. Timothy preach the word. We never read in the Bible that the man of God has to be funny, that he has to be amusing, 
that he has to have people leave feeling good about themselves. No, the job of the man of God is bring the word of God. I had an old school teacher and he was telling us uh, in class one day now this is going back to about 1996 and mobile phones had really only just become popular then maybe they were popular in America before then but uh, but, but things take a, little, a lot longer to get to the United Kingdom but he says he was standing at a train station in Dublin and there was a man dressed in his business suit in a big queue of people and he had his big mobile phone at his ear and he was talking away as if he was some important person sealing some business deal and everybody around could could hear the conversation that was going on when all of a sudden the phone rang (laughs) the man had only been pretending to be in the phone that wasn't in the days of call waiting or anything like that this was in the days when you could store 10 phone numbers on your phone and the man blushed and walked out of the line everybody laughed at him well how sad it is when there's people who are pretending about things that are so serious because dear friend these are matters of life and death these are matters of heaven and hell these are matters that will affect our soul salvation and where we spend eternity and not just us but our loved ones and our children and we can't play around with the word of God and these men these false prophets and that we read of today and that we fear that are in our land we cannot treat them lightly these are men who are causing and wreaking havoc in the church these are men who are leading souls into the flames and fires of hell tonight with a false gospel all because God is silent to them This old prophet, God was silent to him. He wasn't talking. But notice, secondly, his subtlety tonight. Verse 18, he says to the man of God, I am a prophet also as thou art. He's finding ground to identify with this prophet. He's claiming that we're equals. You're a prophet. I'm a prophet. Here's common ground for us. If anything, he's claiming superiority. He's older. And as such, he's more senior to the man of God. Therefore, this man of God should be respecting him. So this false prophet, he comes in with subtlety. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, says again, False prophets are always the worst enemies to true prophets. And that is what the false prophet will do. He will come in with subtlety. He did it here, we see it. But they do it to us today. We have the Roman Catholic who comes along and says, well, I'm a Christian too. I believe the Bible. I believe the, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in his death and resurrection. And it's very sad to say there's many Roman Catholics that believe more of the Bible than evangelical Protestants do today. But there's Roman Catholics will come along and, and for much of it, they, they will agree on the same things as we do. But whenever we come to the vital matters of salvation... We see their error. I remember being in England many years ago uh, doing outreach on the street. And there were Mormons who come over from America to evangelize heathen England. And they were standing on the street and I walked past 
and uh, the man engaged me and I talked to him and started asking him some questions and to my amazement he, he was using all the same terms that I was I nearly didn't know what to talk to him about he spoke of being born again he spoke of, of believing in grace alone through faith alone and, and scripture alone he believed in all these things and, and for the first hour of our conversation we were there a long time he seemed like a genuine evangelical believer because he was using all the right terminology and he kept coming back to the Bible. And it really perplexed me and confused me until we got onto the subject of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. And he says, oh, well, you need that as well. I said, you don't need that as well. And he says, you do. And it's only whenever we got into the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith that suddenly all their heresy and all their lies came out. But for the first hour, dear friend, I struggled to find things to differ with that man on. He knew what to say from the Bible. He knew how to be subtle. Well, this prophet, look at verse 18, at what he says about his subtlety. He says, an angel speak unto me by the word of the Lord. Now, this sounds really fascinating. It, it, it sounds believable. It sounds spectacular. Supernatural event happens. An angel came and spoke to me. As if you can't argue with me. You can't tell me that I'm wrong. An angel came and spoke to me here. An angel's a higher power than you are. So you can't argue about this. And sadly we see a lot of this today. People saying I have a special revelation from God. Whenever I was a young believer, I was living in England. There were very few evangelical churches in my area that would preach the whole word of God. I listened intently to sermon audio and let the Bible speak. But I also turned on the religious channels. In my youthful days, I didn't realize that uh, they allowed heretics on religious channels. But I've turned out now, it turns out now that they allow nothing but heretics on religious channels. But I used to watch those men on TV. And how sad it is that nearly, if not all of them, I can't recall perfectly, but nearly, if not all of them, claim to have a special revelation from God. I remember one man, Jesse DePlant, I think his name was. And he, I remember him saying one time that as he was preaching, God give him a revelation about this couple sitting on the front row about their adultery. And other, and this is sort of how his ministry went on. God give him a revelation about this and that and the other. Well, dear friend, God doesn't work like that. The Bible is the full revelation that we need. If a man comes and says, I have a special revelation from God, it might sound attractive. It might sound like a supernatural event uh, has occurred with this man, just like the false prophet here, an angel speak unto me. But dear friend, it's not of the Lord. The Lord has anything to teach you and tell you. It'll come through your word. If we start believing that men need special revelations from God outside of the word, we're devaluing the word of God. We're saying this word is not special enough. I need to get these supernatural experiences like the man on TV if I'm to be a sincere believer. I remember a man in Northern Ireland who went on the radio. He's one of the pastors in a large charismatic church. 
And he said, unless you can speak in tongues, you're not converted. He went on the radio and he said that. If you cannot speak in tongues, you're not converted. So he immediately says, it doesn't matter what you believe about the Bible. This, this is me interpreting what he's saying. It doesn't matter what you believe about the Bible. It doesn't matter what the Bible teaches you. You need to seek after an experience. And suddenly, religion or Christianity turns from being what the Bible has to teach us about ourselves to being experience-based. And once you do that, you may as well close your Bible, put it in the cupboard, and go and seek after your experiences. Well, that's what this prophet was doing. He was subtle. He deceived this man of God with his experience. But look at the message in a subtlety. Verse 18 Bring him back with thee. This is the message that he claims the angel give him. Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Now that doesn't sound overly sinister or wicked, does it? An angel told me to to bring you back to my house so that you can eat bread and drink water. Now eating and drinking isn't sinful, is it? Well, it's not. Unless the Lord directs you otherwise. And the Lord had directed this man of God otherwise. He had told him not to do it. This man of God had a command from the Lord. Not to turn to the left or the right. Not to stop to eat bread, drink water, go into anybody's house. No. But now this old prophet comes along. And he doesn't tell him to go back and, and bless Jeroboam and all his, his, his apostasy. No. He says, an angel says, come and eat and drink water with me. You see, the devil's temptations are small and they're very, very subtle. Think of the garden. Whenever Satan appeared to Eve, he didn't come as a mighty giant. He didn't come as a lion. He didn't come as a gator. He came as a little serpent. Serpent along the branch of a tree. Nothing scary about that. Whispered in her ear. It didn't bellow at her. didn't intimidate her. No, just a little whisper in the ear of Eve. And she fell. And then she caused her husband to fall too. Samson. He didn't disclose the secret of his strength to the powerful Philistine army. It wasn't whenever he was slain a thousand with the jawbone of an ass that they wore him down and got his secret out of him. No. It was ever, it was whenever he was in the bedroom with the woman he loved. She got his secret out of him. Ahithophel seemed so loyal to David. Then Absalom comes along. He's younger. He's stronger. He's probably going to be the king one day. Maybe I should just go with him now. See, the devil's temptations are small and subtle. And so it was for this man of God. The old prophet came along with subtle temptations. An angel says, eat, drink, come with me. Dear friend, we can sit and judge this man of God. And we can criticize him. And say he shouldn't have done it. And that's right, he shouldn't have done it. But the truth is, it's so easy for you and me to be led astray as well. 
This is why we need that intimate relationship with God. This is why we need to know the word of God. This is why we need to be filled with the Spirit day and daily. So that we're not deceived and led astray. One of the things that fascinates me, spend quite a bit of time studying, are the cults. And I was studying recently the Mormons and looking up how they were uh, brought into being. And of course you'll know that Utah is really the Mormon state. I think it is anyway. But I couldn't believe whenever I looked at the statistics that 58% of Utah describes itself as Mormon. 58% of Utah describes itself as Mormon. Only 7% class themselves as evangelical believers. Now that's amazing. Whenever you think that the Latter-day Saints, the Church of Mormon, it only began in 1830. In 188 years, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has grown to 15 million members and 30,000 congregations. If you average that out, that's about 80,000 converts a year. 80,000. And what do they have? What are they using? Well, they come along with the subtlety of the word of God. But really they have the deceitful book, the Book of Mormon. How sad it is, if that is true, 58% of Utah are lost. 58% of Utah are going to hell. 58% of Utah and 15 million people around the world have been deceived by a false prophet. This ought to be concerning to us, dear friends. The old prophet, we've noticed the silence of God, the subtlety. Notice thirdly here tonight his sinfulness. Verse 11 says, His sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done. Now why were his sons there? What were they doing there? Well, if you turn to the end of chapter 12, you'll see. The end of chapter 12. Verse 32, And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So why were his sons there? His sons are there because they are joining in the apostate worship. That's why his sons are there. And the chances are that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And this old prophet was probably engaged in this false worship as well. His sinfulness, 
He was a supporter of the false worship, but a sinfulness we also see in eight, verse 18, that he lied. Verse 18, he lied unto him. He lied unto the man of God. Now, maybe you're thinking tonight, well, that's not such a bad thing. We all tell a little lie here and there. But dear friends, what you and I call a little sin, God calls an abomination. The ninth commandment is, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And here this man of, this supposed prophet of God has just broken the ninth commandment. And he's done so flippantly without a care in the world. He lied. And in lying, he sought to derail a man of God. And this is the work of Satan to cause Christians to stumble. The work of Satan is to do away with the law of God. And how sad it is to see that in our own land. How sad it is to see in the Western world that even Christians have such a low view of God's law. You see, a lot of people think the law of God is finished. But it's not finished. It's still in place. And we ought to be those who have the highest view of the law of God. Because the law of God works to our sanctification. The law of God makes us holy. The law of God makes us more Christ-like. If this was truly a prophet of God, he would have been grieved at breaking God's law. And he ought not to have done it. One of the things that I've loved in America here, I think I've told you before, is Chick-fil-A. I think it's uh, an amazing business, not just for the awesome food that they do, but for the principles that they're founded upon. I remember an American friend in Scotland telling me about Chick-fil-A. They don't open on a Sunday. And I near couldn't believe it. There's a place that doesn't, a fast food chain that doesn't open on a Sunday. Yes, I, I said, well, why not? He said, because of their Christian ethos. And I thought, this is amazing. I thought, by and large, that the Sabbath day wasn't really kept in America here. I know that in dispensational circles, they say, well, the, the fourth commandment wasn't repeated in the New Testament, therefore we don't have to keep it. As if God needs to repeat himself in order to, uh, for us to be obedient. All the commandments are still in place. The fourth commandment included. But I thought this was amazing. A Christian business that won't open on the Sabbath day. There's Christians taking a stand for the word of God. And then I started researching into Chick-fil-A. And it seems that all the liberals and the, the sodomite movements and all seem to hate Chick-fil-A as a result of this and that just inspired me to eat there more often and it's a good thing dear friends that I'm going home next week otherwise I'd have to go out and buy a new suit <laughs> because <coughs> I've had too many Chick-fil-A's but it's been amazing to see there is a Christian business taking a stand for the word of God and if a business can do that without fear of reprisal, without fear of losing customers, then, dear friend, we ought to be men and women who take the same stand for the word of God, day and daily, wherever we are. If Chick-fil-A can do it nationally for America, dear friend, we can do it in our little corner, where God has us to be. We shouldn't worry that people will laugh at us. We shouldn't worry that 
the LGBTQ plus parade will come and protest outside our house. We should be thankful for a little opportunity to speak for our Saviour. But this old prophet, he sought to derail a man of God. We can maybe ask the question, why was he not punished? Why didn't God strike him down dead there and then? Well, God was being merciful to this sinner. God was giving him time to repent. That's what God was being. This world today, oh, it says God's not merciful. But look here. God could have killed this man, but he didn't. He gave him time to think how greater his judgment would be for lying, deceiving, and being responsible for the death of this man of God. God was merciful to him. One of the things I wanted to do in coming to Florida here was go and hear uh, an old preacher, R.C. Sproul, uh, having had the opportunities, he's passed into God's glory. But I was listening to him one time and he was asked the question, Since God is slow to anger and patient, why, whenever man first sinned, was God's punishment so severe and long-lasting? Long Terrible question, isn't it? Somebody to ask. If God is slow to anger a patient, why was God's punishment so severe and so long-lasting? Well, R.C. Sproul answered. He says, This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting and holy God. And God said that in the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day, was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. And you're telling me the punishment was too severe. Well, dear friend, we maybe wonder, why doesn't God cut off the wicked? Why is God so merciful? Why is God so patient? God is giving men grace and time to repent from their sinfulness. Why? Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This old prophet, God give him grace to repent and turn from his sin. Which brings me on to my fourth and final point this evening. We thought of the silence of God, the subtlety of the prophet, the sinfulness of the prophet. Now I want you to notice the seeking of the prophet. Verse 31. The prophet says, Whenever, or sorry, when I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. Something. Alarming about this. When I'm dead, bury me with that man that I deceived. Whose death I'm responsible for. Bury me with him. Put my bones beside his. He knew there was something different about this prophet. Different from him. He thought he was a prophet, but he realizes this is actually a prophet. This is actually a man of God. I don't want my bones destroyed in future days. Maybe there's something more spiritual about it. Maybe he's looking to be associated 
with this man of God in eternity and says, well, if my bones are with his, then, then maybe I'll be where he'll be. And there's people who do have those superstitious notions in their hearts brought up with them. And surely the desire of this man is to be in heaven. That's the desire of all men to be in heaven. And he thinks if I'm buried with him. But is this evidence of conversion? Is this evidence of his salvation? All he's asking is to be buried with this man. It doesn't mean he's converted. Remember Balaam. Balaam cried, let me die the death of the righteous and let my latter end be like his, that is like Israel's. Balaam blessed the nation of Israel, but Balaam died in his sin. It's the man who went to hell with his eyes wide open. Judas Iscariot kissed the face of Jesus Christ. He returned the 30 pieces of silver, but Judas Iscariot still went to hell. This prophet, oh, he may have had desires to be where the man of God was in heaven with God. But just because he had those desires doesn't mean they were fulfilled. We see nothing of repentance. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 7 verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? So the Lord Jesus says that there will be those who come to him on the day of judgment saying, Lord, we've done this in your name. We haven't done it in the name of Muhammad. We haven't done it in the name of Caesar or the Pope. We've done it in your name. Lord, we're professing to be your people. And what will the Lord Jesus Christ say to those? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And dear friend, this will be the word that the false prophets hear from the lips of Christ. He doesn't say, well, you've tried your best. He doesn't say you were led a little astray by that man on the TV. No, he said, I never knew ye. And why will he say that? Because they never knew him. They knew something of a form of Christianity. They knew something uh, of the Bible enough to pass themselves off as genuine believers. But they didn't know Christ. They didn't know him experientially in their heart. They hadn't been born again. They took the name of Christian, but not the person of Christ. What is Christ? How does Christ sum up their work? Ye that work iniquity. But we did this for the poor. We reached out to these people. We filled stadiums. Christ calls it iniquity. But notice the judgment that Christ brings upon them. Depart from me. Christ says to the false prophets on the day of judgment. Now not just the false prophets of 1 Kings 13. But the false prophets of today and every age as well. Depart from me. You have no place with me in heaven. You have no place with me in eternity. And dear friend the sad reality is. That if we have no place with Christ in eternity. We'll be lost in hell forever. This is the sad judgment. 
that will come upon the old prophet of 1 Kings 13 and the sad judgment that will come upon those in our land today who are preaching another gospel. There's many today and they pass themselves as evangelicals and they're using the evangelical terms I've been born again. I've been baptized with the Spirit. They'll go and they'll be baptized in water. They'll, they'll partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's a form of easy believism Christianity. Now the gospel is not hard. The gospel is simple. Repent and believe are the two fundamental tenets of the gospel. But whenever we strip the gospel of all our responsibility to turn from sin whenever we strip the gospel of what it is to really lament our sin whenever we strip the gospel of what it cost our saviour to suffer for our sin on that tree and we make it just a case of just put up your hand and just sign this card just walk the aisle just be baptised and then all will be fine with you we've corrupted and perverted the gospel and we've made another gospel we might be using parts of scripture but it's another gospel entirely no doubt there are some in the world today and they maybe think this old prophet was a believer they probably said well he was just a a poor man who went astray a little surely God will be merciful to him no this was a false prophet deceiving a man of God well dear friends today we have to be so so careful that we are not deceived by false prophets. They come in amongst us as subtly as this man did. But the end result is destruction and damnation. May we ever be those who not only watch out for them. May we be those who pray against them. May we be those who pray for the people who are under the influence of these people. How sad it is. Whenever you turn on these religious channels and there's these adverts, send in your money and you'll get a tissue that I have prayed over. Only costs $40. And people do this. They're deceived. Thinking, oh, if I get this tissue that somebody has prayed over, sneezed into, it'll be wonderful. It'll change my life. But it's nothing short of Protestant popery. Believing in some relic. We need to pray for these people. Because the sheer fact that these TV channels are here. The sheer fact that these mega churches are here. Shows that this is a serious problem. And there aren't 40,000 people uh, who are believers. Uh, listening to a false prophet. The, the, the people knowing better than the false prophet. No, these are 40,000 people being deceived. 40,000 people who if the Lord came tonight would be lost. We need to see this. And we need to pray for these people. And we need to have compassion upon them. And that the Lord would even open a door for us to speak to them. To point them to the Lamb of God. Not to a preacher. Not to a prophet. But to the true prophet. May God give us the grace to do so. But we'll come to pray this evening.
and encourage as many as possible to pray one after the other seeking the face of God and laying hold of him our heavenly father we thank thee tonight for the one who is the true prophet the Lord Jesus Christ how we thank thee for the one who is the fulfillment of the word and the one upon whom alone we can rest Father, we thank thee that all the revelation thou has for us is found in this holy book. And we pray, Father, that thou will make us those who are diligent in reading and studying, even as Paul exhorted Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. And Father, we want to know thee. We want to experience thy blessing. And Lord, we pray that as we study thy word, And seek to walk with God that thou will help us and aid us. And Father we think of those tonight who are so greatly deceived. We think of those tonight who even this very hour are sitting in front of false prophets on the television. And Father we do pray that thou will smite the false prophets. We do pray Father that thou would cause that genuine awakening in the souls of men whereby they will turn from their sin, whereby they will seek salvation in Christ alone, through grace alone. O Father, we pray for a reviving of true Bible-believing, evangelical Christianity in this nation. We pray that Orlando will be shook with the gospel. Lord, the hurricanes come and they pass through, and people make preparations for that, but they make no preparation to meet their God. And Lord, we pray that thou will turn this place upside down with the gospel, that thou will cause the word of God to flourish, that thou will cause, Father, there to be a hunger and thirst after thy word again. Lord, may it be that even uh, the Bibles that are in sale and Dollar Tree will be sold out, such is the demand for people who are seeking to read thy word and to hear the voice of God. Make it, Father, that the places of worship that preach the word are filled to overflowing with men and women seeking after thee. Come, we pray, God. This nation needs thee. Let not evil prevail. Let not man prevail against thee. Let not the devil have his field day in the city of Orlando. But come, we cry, and pour out a blessing. O Lord, help. Remember for the Sabbath day, we need thee. The preacher needs thee. The congregation needs thee. Draw souls in from far and wide to come and hear the word. And and God, we pray, may salvation visit this house. Oh, we pray for a breath from heaven. Come and do great things we ask of thee. Even surprise us, rebuke us in our unbelief. And let us see the Lord mightily at work. We think of how thou came suddenly to Israel. And they penned the words of Psalm 126. When Zion's bondage God turned back. As men that dreamed were we. Then filled with laughter was our mouth. Our tongue with melody. O God let us experience that sudden reviving. Come, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.